0: Hey, I'm Joe Pellegrino and welcome to Legacy Lifters. My guest today is actually my assistant. His name is Craig Livesey. Craig is uh, one of the most fascinating young men I've ever met. He is just, well, you know what? Let's let him tell you. Craig, welcome. Hi, how's it going? It's going well, buddy. Yeah, so well, Craig,
1: I, got yeah. what? I'm just honored to be here. You know, I, I'm just excited to uh, be talking with you, sharing a little bit about uh, some of my experiences and how I got to where I am, so.
0: Well, let's start. Let's start with from the beginning. Where were you born?
1: Uh, Plattsburgh, New York. So it's a little small town called Wiggletown.
0: Wiggletown. That's a real place.
1: It is. So there's uh, the folklore is that um, back in the day, the trailers were so they were made so cheap that when the wind blew, all the trailers would wiggle. So it slowly became known as Wiggletown. And to give some description of what this town was like, it's a community of probably three or four trailer parks. And you probably could see on a, a regular day more lawnmowers being ridden than cars being driven. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I was actually one of those kids, my cousins and I, what we used to do is we used to buy lawnmowers. We would take off the mowing deck and turn them into like almost like go-karts. We would get them to go like 25, 30 miles an hour. We would drive around and a lot of other people did that. So uh, it, it was quite the scene growing up. It wasn't quite uh, normal, but mm. it was different. And I, I really appreciate uh, that experience in my life.
0: So, so it was a, I, I'm assuming it was a poorer area.
1: Yep, very, very much so. Uh, I myself, I remember being on welfare, on food stamps, uh, had a great mom. She was a single mom for a short period of time. Uh, and then she met my stepdad, who she's no longer with, um, but he was a great man as well. And I just remember as a kid seeing them both struggle. I, I remember he was a uh, surgeon's assistant in the hospital. He used to work really hard. He would practice sewing on napkins and um, washcloths all the time. My mom would work from six in the morning to six at night, just about every single day. And I completely took advantage of her and my stepdad my entire childhood Uh, I was a very, very angry kid. Why? Well, something happened to me when I was young. When I was uh, seven or eight years old, it is hard for me to remember my exact age, but uh, I spent a lot of time in the woods, and I would go for walks in the woods, and somebody who I thought was my friend uh, actually sexually abused me, and from that day, I wasn't the same. Um, I remember the day that it happened. It It just didn't make sense. I didn't even know really what had happened because, you know, I was young and I really never thought about anything in that in that category as far as like like sexual things like that. But I just remember when I walked out of the woods. I just felt alone. I just felt like I could never the feeling in my heart was even though I didn't understand what just happened, I could never tell anybody what just happened. I could just never say a word about it. And there was this immense, immense, immense fear in my heart. And the driving, what drove that nail even a little bit deeper, I remember coming home to my stepdad because they, they must have been waiting for us. We were going somewhere, I remember, because they were all getting in the car. And he looks at me, he goes, where have you been? And the fear, you know, false evidence appearing real. I know you've heard of that. Mm-hmm. The fear made myself here. I know what just happened to you. Hmm. That's what I heard. I know what just happened to you. And it was like, how, I can't tell anybody. And then that just made the fear worse. So all my, my childhood, I would say up until I was goodness, maybe even into my twenties, I just felt like I had to be alone and nobody could know my my deepest secret. Nobody can know this. Anybody, nobody, my mom, my mom, actually, if she hears this, it'll be news to her.
0: My dad, no. it'll be news to him. Did he know, or you just were paranoid?
1: Oh, very paranoid. Mm. Oh, I was very, he did not know. He, he was, uh, he is probably just messing with me. And like I said, as a kid and the fear, I think it completely changed what I heard and even the way he said it, and everything. Um, so yeah, no, he didn't, there's, we were in the middle of the, the woods when it happened and I probably had to walk back alone, like a half mile, maybe even a mile. Um, but that, that was really a defining moment in my life because like I said, I, I turned inward emotionally. Uh, I've always kind of been a little bit of an extrovert. Uh, I, feel, I like to listen and, and study people and everything, but as far as like sharing what's going on in my heart, I, I don't think I really ever told anybody when I had a bad day. My entire life up until like
0: just a few years ago. Hmm. So tell me what it was like growing up with your family. What was a family? How, how many siblings do you have? So I have seven siblings. Um, seven. Yes. Yeah, seven. Oh, no, no, sorry. 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 I'm one of seven.
1: I always say that. So I'm one of seven. My dad is one of seven. And if uh, God is willing to bless my wife and I, I hope my boys <laughs> will have five other siblings. Hmm. That that, I don't know if my wife hears maybe she'll have something else to say about that but um, life growing up was again different Uh, it was challenging emotionally um, but I don't think I would honestly change anything Uh, my dad and my mom got divorced when I was two years old Um, my dad was an alcoholic he he never recognized it I would say my entire life um, he would drink very often, uh, at least three to four nights a week, at least, um, some nights, some, some portions in his life, it'd be every single night. Um, and all my aunts and uncles were the same way on his side of the family. They were all the same way. Um, and I know as a kid, he was, uh, physically, uh, abused by my grandpa uh, so he still has issues that I'm praying one day he'll work out. But how that translated into my life was that, you know, he was very, uh, very shy to share what he was going through. So he turned into the the tough guy um, and he turned into, uh, you know, this man who felt like everything was slated against him. Hmm. How he used that was with me, my brother, and my sister. I have two full siblings of this of the six siblings, two of them are full siblings, same mom, same dad. Uh, one of them, my youngest brother, I've never met. Uh, I have a younger half-sister, my younger full sister, and then my older full brother, and then another brother and another sister who lived eight hours away from me my whole life. But I did get to see them growing up. Um, but what my dad used in that slated sense when he, when he felt like something was owed to him. He, he kind of used us kids and he was paying child support to my mom and, uh, he would try to pin us against my mom to try to gain custody of us. So he didn't have to pay child support so he could have, uh, in my, in my life, looking back, what I would say is the victory over my mom. Like, um, it was a constant battle and they must've went to court 20 times by the time I was even six years old. For little things, and it, it really took a toll. My my stepdad chasing my dad around, my dad chasing my stepdad around, almost getting in fights. Uh, it started off I could only, and I have my assumptions, and I'm not gonna share too much of my dad's past. Um, but I have my assumptions on what he had did to my mom that created this entire situation. Uh, but for some reason, in the very early years of my childhood, he could not see us without um, supervision. So we had to be in a a room, and we could only see him once a week. It was Saturdays, Um, and we had to be in a supervised room with, uh, I don't know if if it was a counselor or somebody else, but it was this big old room. We'd get to run around and play as kids, and we'd get to see my dad for a couple hours. And that went on for a short period of time, and then he was able to get us on uh, Friday nights and Saturday nights. Uh, Then we would come back to my mom's house Sunday mornings, and then we want to see him again until Friday night or Saturday night. So as a kid, only seeing my dad for such a short period of time, I really had such a fondness for him. I loved him. He was my hero. I would tell him all the time. And I, I, like, I would just tell him, dad, you're my, you're my hero, you know, cause he loved that I played sports and he would always cheer me on. But what he would turn that into is, well, if you love me so much, come live with me. Mm. You love me so much. Come live with me. And I, I'm not kidding, that hit me in the sense of, yeah, I should go live with you, dad, because I love you so much. And my mom would always say, Craig, you can't go live with your dad, I'm telling you. you and she, she is such a good woman, I'm telling you, she's a great woman. To this day, she would never say anything bad about anybody, not even my dad, even when, when he would call her up, swearing at her, you know? Uh, and I remember one time, and this all makes sense in just a couple minutes on how it impacted me. I remember one time I was probably right around that same age, seven or eight years old, maybe nine. Um, and my mom calls me into the bedroom. She says, Craig, now you just need to calm down and just, here's the phone. Uh, just make sure when it's your dad, you're going to talk to him. Just be calm. I'm like, why? why are you telling me these things? Why do I need to be calm? Like, why do you keep saying that to me? So I get on the phone and I'm like, hey, dad, and he's crying. I'm like, dad, what's going on? What, hey, dad, daddy, what's, what's wrong? Uh, and he, he proceeded to tell me that he's in jail and he's going to be in jail for the next six months. Um, but he also made sure to tell me it's because of your mother, because I didn't pay child support. She threw me in jail. So as a kid, you cannot discern the responsibility of people, you know what I'm saying? So I literally, and I was young, I turned to my mother and I swore at her at, when I was a kid. I said, you B word. How could you? And I started screaming, crying as a kid, hearing your dad's in jail. It broke my heart. I thought I was never going to see him again. And it broke my heart. And all the, all these things that just seemed to pin me against my mom, my dad and was always uh, seen in my eyes as the victim. As I grew older, I started to see it wasn't that way, but it, I'm so grateful it happened, but it almost happened too late because my entire teenage years from the the past experience as a young kid, going inward, not telling anybody, and all this anger being built up and it being directed, it was directed at my mom. I I remember punching her car when she would try to drive away, screaming at her. I was so angry. I I used to just scream at her. So many swear words. I used to be so angry. Uh, I used to punch holes in the wall. I used to just be the worst. I, I was a monster. I believe if she would never tell you this. <laughs> uh, Cause if I called her right now, I was like, mom, you know, I'm sorry for how I treated you. She would say this, Craig, you are a great son. I love you. That's what she would say to me. That's how she's just a loving mother, but it's, my eyes have been opened to who I was to her. So as a, as a child, you know, living in a, a poor area, seeing the things that I've seen, people growing marijuana in their sheds, uh, literally doors open midday, uh, being not even a teenager yet, seeing like plants and plants and plants of marijuana and uh, seeing people. My first job was uh, in Wiggletown. It was at this thing called what they call the Wiggletown Walmart. It was a redemption center that this guy would buy uh, for Walmarts when they would be getting new shipments in of chips and their old chips are like expired or whatever. Instead of throwing them out, he'd buy them really, really cheap. So we could go to the redemption center, us kids and buy so much for so little. And that was my first job. And on my first day on that job, uh, they were snorting cocaine and smoking marijuana right next to me. And I was, I don't even think I was legal to work yet. I might've been 14 years old. This was just the environment that I was kind of exposed to as a kid. And it was very normal. Like, 14, 15-year-olds getting drunk all the time. I was 15 getting drunk. We were stealing uh, 30 packs of beer off our neighbor's porches. I remember one night we went around, me and three of my cousins, and our mission in Wiggletown was to get as much beer, steal as much beer from other different people as we could. And I remember we got 120 beers and we were pulling it on a winter sled because this is in New York and uh, it'd be very cold uh, in the winter. So we always had sleds hanging around. But our most successful night, we had stolen 120 beers. We all went in the woods. I might've been 15 years old. I uh, got really drunk, fell and hit my head on a rock and I have the scar to this day as a reminder. Uh, I was knocked unconscious. My, my friends and everything had to carry me back home. Um,
0: so that that's a little bit about the area that I'm from. So this anger, you say you took it out on your mom, but were there any other people you took it out on? Certainly. Yeah, I developed this, um, this false
1: impression that I was like, like the good guy, like a hero, good guy, like I would stick up for people. Uh, I remember one time in school, I had fought a kid, Uh, he was picking on somebody. And I stuck up for the kid. But then I ended up fighting that kid who didn't even want to fight me once he was uh, confronted about what he was doing. So I'm the one that progressed, you know, uh, in that situation, I ended up fighting him, I hurt him really bad. Uh, He had a black eye from the top of his forehead all the way down to about the bottom of his cheek. Uh, I was uh, suspended for two weeks. And when I came back, he he was still all all bruised up. Uh, And later on, I learned about this kid that he was, uh, he grew up in a a situation similar to me, very, very poor home. Uh, Didn't have many people that he could lean on. And to this day, my heart still throbs. I, I hope one day to see him again. I did apologize to him, um, but yeah, I developed this uh, false impression that I was the hero slash good guy. I found myself fighting a lot, supporting uh, or sticking up for those who couldn't stick up for themselves, and there is one story that really resonates with me. Um, so my neighbors and I, we used to all get together and we'd play sports. We would play backyard baseball, and football and kickball, all different kinds of sports. And we'd go around and we would gather the teams and there was in the neighborhood, probably three kids that weren't really athletic that we needed though to even the teams out. Cause if we say had five athletic kids, three v versus two, isn't too much fun. Four V four is, is better. Six V six is like the, the, the Mac. That's what you want, but we would always be able to get like four V four just enough, not too little. Uh, There's one kid I remember we would always need to get to play because he wasn't very athletic, but he was a number for us. Um, And I won't say his name, but most times he would come and play. And he had this thing about him. And I want to say it's a negative thing. I think he just felt like an outcast. And for some reason in situations, you know, sometimes how you feel is the, is like what you, the attention you draw. So like, you feel like the outcast for some reason you find yourself saying outcast things. And he would always say things that just seem to, to trigger me. Like what, what is an outcast thing? What does that mean? Like, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to interpret that, but I just remember he would just say things that even though he probably didn't mean them that way, because I looked at him at, as the outcast, I heard outcast things. Okay. This he literally, he can't even say a sentence that, that fits in. So I was always like, had this, this uh, tension with him, even though, I would pretend to be nice to him because we needed him on the field. And we were playing baseball one day and we'd always let one young kid play with us. He was, when we were all probably 16 or 17, he was probably eight or nine, half our age. But he was very athletic and he could keep up with us uh, and he could hit the ball just as well as any of us. But we played peg the pig, which means... And if you have a tennis ball, you can throw the ball at somebody, whether it's the head, the shoulder, it doesn't matter. If you hit them, they're out. So in baseball, you hit it. If the ball's hit to me, I could turn and throw it to you or at you. And if it hits you, you're out. The rule was you couldn't throw it at this kid because he was so young. And the gentleman that I had tension with, he was the pitcher. And he knew this rule And because we had told him. Um, and he ended up throwing the ball at, that, at the young kid after we had made up the rules and even had to tell him once not to throw it at him. So I went up and uh, charged the mound cause I was the batter and I fist fought him, beat him up. And this was the third time in my life that I had fought him. And I remember standing over him and his face, he, he had paler skin. Um, and when he blushed, you could just see it. He was one of those kids that just, you know, when you just, your face is just really, really red. And my heart, it impressed my heart, even to this day, I just remember knowing, almost feeling guilty. I didn't feel guilty for much in my childhood years, uh, but I almost felt guilty or convicted. But I just remember seeing his face turn so red and my heart almost felt like the embarrassment. I just knew he was super embarrassed. And he got up and he he didn't say anything and his eyes said he wanted to cry, but he ran to his bike, he was probably 18 years old. and he ran to his bike, got on his bike, and started riding away. Um, when he was riding away, he, he threw up his hand and, and flipped us the bird, specifically me. And I was very fast. I remember running down the road, and I probably could have caught him, but he was too close to home. I wasn't going to fight him in front of his, his mom or dad. So instead, I said, you know what? Next time I see him, I'm going to beat him up so bad." that he won't even be able to raise that hand, that he won't be able to give me that finger ever again. I'm going to beat him up that bad that I'm actually going to hurt him. Because when I had seen his face turn red, I had lightened up and I let him up. Uh, I, I didn't, like, continue to hit him or anything. But that's not what I was thinking when he had flipped me off. Now now my ego and my pride were speaking. And, um, well, just a few days later, I went to my dad's that weekend, and I, I came back, and we're, we're searching for numbers. We're going to get the teams ready to play. Uh, we got the main kids, even the little kid that was playing with us before, but we had on numbers. And so we were searching the neighborhood for anybody that could even out the teams. And he was one of the kids that we'd constantly search for, go to his house, knock on the door, ask around. And I had seen somebody walking on the side of the street and I said, Hey, have you seen and I said his name and they looked at me and said, Oh, you didn't hear. I was like, no, hear what? And they said, well, he, uh, committed suicide this weekend. He, um, he hung himself in the woods, the very same woods uh, where I was abused, actually. Uh, so there's some darkness in those woods, I could tell you that, and uh, that really changed my life. Because how did it change your life? Um, immediately I would i would say uh, it just caused me to go inside even more, again from such a young age to this point, I was so good at uh, avoiding talking about myself or telling anybody about me. Uh, I would say, you know, God did create me to be uh, overall a overall grateful person. So I, I truly would never like complain as a kid, but there, there were things going on inside. Like I had, I, I talked to you about the immense fear. There's also immense anxiety and paranoia. I think that you had said that. And, Crazy, crazy paranoia as a kid. Literally, I could almost feel like the the devil was whispering behind my ear constantly. Like you're gonna something big's gonna happen to you, you're gonna be exposed, or this or that, like something is just gonna ruin your life. Whatever it was. And I just had this huge anxiety. I tell I tell people now what I felt like was in like the Rocky movies, you know, those pieces of meat that they hang on the I felt like my insides that one of those pieces of meat was me. And somebody just kept taking a hook and just grinding the meat. And it was just, my life was so uncomfortable, like spiritually, uh, emotionally on the inside. I just, I just always felt like I was being choked. I always felt like this, my entire life, my entire childhood life. Um, But that moment changed my life because uh, I turned and started doing drugs. Looking back, I see exactly why I started doing them because I wanted to continue to numb my heart. I got into boxing, started actually channeling my urges to fight. um, And I did all different kinds of drugs, uh, started to steal a lot, got arrested one time for grand larceny, almost went to jail. Keep in mind, I will say this. I've always believed in God my entire life. Never knew the Lord. Always believed in a God. I was uh, raised Roman Catholic. So I would say prayers every single night when I was a kid. Uh, I would pray for every single one of my family members. Um, I would pray that, you know, that my dad would be able to quit smoking, be able to quit drinking, all these things. But I did not know the Lord at all. There was definitely uh, no relationship there between he and I. Um, So when I was doing drugs, even through that, I just, you know, you kind of when you're doing something bad and you don't know who somebody is, it's very easy to just say, he's okay with this. He doesn't care. Like, you know, I, whatever, whatever I was feeling. Um, and I almost committed suicide twice. I remember, uh, I'll, I'll jump into a, a, a ne- the next segment of my life. Cause it kind of carries into that uh, was when I met my, my wife. Um, you know, I mentioned, I've always believed in God for a reason. And that being, I've always had this impression in my heart that when you meet the woman, your heart loves, be fully committed to her. And it was, it, I, it never felt like it was just my own thinking or, or my, my own like desire, but like, it was something like coming from the, like either outside into my heart. Like, I just never understood where that came from. And when you find somebody who believes in you, commit to him as well. And those were like two things through all this anxiety that were there since I was a kid. I, I would tell my wife, listen, I loved you from the first moment I saw you, which is true. And we saw, we met at a party where we were both getting uh, drunk as teenagers. Uh, and we'll get into where we're, we are now. But uh, I tell her, the moment I saw you, I loved you. And I, I told her this, I said, you know, I felt in my life for a very long time, honestly, and I, I'd say this because I can't really all my life, all the way back to my memory, like as far as my memory goes, I firmly have always had this. So I even tell her, you know, it might've been before I was even born. You know, the word does say that God knew us before we were in the womb. But I say, I just have had this uh, feeling that when I meet the woman that my heart loves to fully commit to her and the same thing for the first person who truly believes in you. And I told her the second I saw you I was, that, that came back to me and I just, I just knew. And um, so we started dating and I was still doing a lot of drugs. We actually, my wife and I, we used to uh, smoke a lot of marijuana together. Uh, She has her things that she's been delivered from, praise God. Um, But congruent with the other issues in my life, I had this fear to name a specific fear that I had of uh, never being good enough. Um, And it was real, it was very real. I always thought uh, my mom and dad were divorced. My mom got divorced the second time from my stepdad. Um, Every single one of my uncles, minus one, uh, all divorced. Uh, My aunt used to be extremely abused by her boyfriends, like physically, Uh, one of her boyfriends uh, beat her so bad one time that he actually broke her arm and concussed her, hitting her so hard. Uh, my cousins had to see that growing up. Their life was really tough. Um, so I had literally seen broken relationships all around. And when you grow up in a poor area, you really, really see broken relationships. And I'm not kidding. Like, uh, it is, you see a lot of single parents, uh, a lot of, uh, parents who are, um, you know, maybe they're the ones growing marijuana in the sheds that I was telling you about, but like not doing good things. Um, so I always had this fear also that now my heart's telling me the first person you feel you love, commit to. But I've also always had this fear that uh, anybody you love is going to leave you. So that I was always running away. You know, when I when in my childhood that happened to me, I learned to go in, didn't tell anybody. Uh, and when I was angry with my mom and I didn't have like a, a lot of compassion for her. Uh, I see them as now ways that I was just not having to confront that fear of letting my heart feel vulnerable.
0: Hmm.
1: So I was extremely paranoid of now that I found the one that I know my heart loves of her not loving me, uh, even after we started dating. So shortly after we had, uh, about five or six months after we've been dating, we just up and moved. My wife, or my wife and I—she's my wife now—but um, we moved about one thousand miles away from our hometown to North Carolina, where my brother was living. He's a Marine, um, and I was still very paranoid at this point. I was prescribed Adderall. Uh, I don't think I've ever needed it. I was extremely addicted to it. I I would not take it how it was supposed to be taken. Uh, for instance, I would. Uh, I would snort it actually. I'm not very proud of that, but uh, I was addicted to it and I was prescribed a lot of it. And if I didn't have it, I did not believe I could make it through a day. And it made me very paranoid Uh, to add on to my fear. It made me very paranoid. So I always thought that my wife was, or my, my girlfriend at the time was just going to leave me. I always felt like those same fears in my life were going to be brought back up and I was just going to be overwhelmed and just self implode and just who knows what was going to happen one day. Um, so to kind of battle that, my brothers, one of somebody my brother knew, I, I won't name anybody, was on uh, antidepressants, and they had extra antidepressants in their house. And he had told me, hey, you know, if you're feeling a certain way, you could take them. Uh, but I was taking them, and I was taking them, and I was taking them. And uh, the paranoia grew worse. Uh, my clarity in my mind, really went south Uh, I remember waking up taking Adderall searching for these these antidepressants and life was not good I was believing in the how old were you at this time uh 19 about yeah 19 yeah 19 so I was I was pretty young I wasn't quite 20 yet. there's probably five or six months until my 20th birthday uh so I really didn't know. Again, I didn't even tell anybody any of this was going on on the inside. I'm telling you, the the fear and the paranoia was like, you could almost taste it. If I I could almost taste it on the inside of me, it was so powerful. It was so overwhelming, rather. Not powerful. It was just overwhelming. And I could put on a good front and just tell everybody I was uh, doing just fine. But uh, I just remember how the enemy works. He's very crafty. And this moment this moment in my life was very important to me because it really, looking back, exposed this paranoia in myself. Uh, my wife's ex-boyfriend, who she had broken up with to actually date me, was in this same town, a thousand miles away from our hometown because he was a Marine as well. And she saw him in the store. And I, I knew as a, a man, a young man, I was not performing for my wife that she, she, was not, her needs were not being met. So I was super paranoid that she was going to leave me. And the second she told me that she had seen him in the store. Oh my gosh. she was like, my heart just said, Oh, no doubt. She's, she's gonna, she's gonna leave you. She's going to think that God has sent this guy to her and you're, you're toast. You're toast. You're, you're the one that your heart loves. You're toast. Joe. I said, okay, that's I I didn't say it this clearly, but these, this is what my action said. I said, okay, sh- I'm going to have to get her to break up with me because I'm not going to be, uh, but it's going to be under my, my watch. I'm going to make sure these things happen. So control. Uh, oh yeah. And I started, I remember one night I got extremely drunk, uh, drank probably like a whole bottle, one of the medium to larger sizes of uh, peach schnapps, I believe is what it was. Disgusting stuff. Uh, but I remember I was extremely drunk and was doing some stupid things. And you know, we lived in an apartment on an air mattress. Her and I. This, when I say I wasn't performing, she is a great woman, and I hope she listens to this because she is a great woman. We were living in an apartment, no money. We had one of the best purchases I made was a shower curtain. I'm telling you, that was like, like huge for us because uh, we were taking showers without a shower curtain for a while. We lived on an air mattress that had two holes in it. Every night we would have to wake up twice in the night to re-blow up the air mattress because it would it would slowly deflate through the duct tape and we'd wow. find ourselves on the floor. We had no furniture. And I truly like I I truly loved her. Even though I was not like, I didn't know who I was, I didn't know why I was here and I was battling all these fears and everything else. I truly loved her. And I say that because like on valentine's day i remember uh, setting up two lawn chairs in our living room uh we had a mini portable dvd player i, I played a romantic movie on i got flower petals and and i made like i think plain rice it was kind of gross but like she says that she liked it but we had no seasonings nothing it was like we were really really scraping by like just barely uh and i had to work an hour away so i drove an hour to work drove an hour back um, to just barely make it every week so i I was definitely praying to God. I didn't know who I was praying to that those times. But uh, so I say all this because even though like I was doing all I could, now this hit me that, oh, you're doing all you could. She does. She's not going to recognize it. And now she's going to leave you for this guy. So I started getting drunk, started uh, talking like, I I would just say down to her and like harshly with her and just like trying to emotionally disconnect with her. And I remember looking at her one point and it just came out and I said, fine, you know, if you're not happy, you need to go home. I just said it to her. I said, and it's like the last two or three months of me self-sabotaging my relationship with her. They finally came out in words. My biggest fear came out in words and just said, fine, if you, uh, if you essentially, you know, can't, can't live with a guy like me, you might as well just go back home. I'm getting ready to check the box and say, okay, job well done. Stupid self. (laughs) But uh, I remember it was so bad when at one point I was very nearly convinced. I was suicidal for probably a few weeks uh, during this, just really, really contemplate, contemplating taking my life. Uh, I had thought about different ways to do it. I remember my brother lived on a highway, or off of a highway. I laid down in the highway for probably maybe five minutes at one time and just said, if, if something happens, it happens. I'm just laying here and I don't care. And no cars came. Uh, another time I was about to, um, I was holding a bottle of antifreeze and remember I, I told you, I could almost hear the enemy whisper behind me and the whispers I heard this night when I was about to drink, this was listen, you're going to want to stop drinking once it hits your lips, but just make sure you guzzle, just drink, make sure you do it like you're drinking, guzzling a water, drink, 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 drink a lot, do the job to completion. You know, that's what I kept hearing, feeling like I had to do if I was going to do it. And I remember looking in and seeing like my family, my niece and nephew through like the front window. My brother's door had windows on each side of it, uh, seeing them. And my niece was not even three years old. And my nephew maybe was four and a half. And I love them so much. And they're so beautiful. And uh, my wife, my girlfriend was inside at the time, my brother and uh, his wife. And all this stuff is happening outside in the dark all the time, it seemed like everything happening inside was always in the dark. Nobody ever knew about it. But but for some reason, I had just put the the antifreeze down, closed the trunk. And to be honest, sir, I don't know why my wife chose to stay. I I would have to say she loves me, (laughs) Uh, especially looking back now. But um, those were some of the very definitive moments in my life that really almost crumbled
0: me okay so we we have established that you had a challenging childhood yeah. you grew up poor you grew up in a, in a household that was divided it was it was a blended family uh, i'm assuming that there was a lot of alcohol and drugs and so forth that you grew up with as you said so now you're 19 20 years old you've just thought about suicide then a new life is starting to blossom. You're you're still you're in North Carolina at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Tell take us now from 20 years old to. What are you 26 now? Yep. So take us from 20 to when the Lord really spoke to you, and then let's talk a little bit about what happened afterwards. Sure. So,
1: you know, my she was my fiance at the time. I keep saying girlfriend. I I proposed to her. Uh, hold on. Let me, let me correct myself. We had chosen to go home together. We left North Carolina together. Uh, instead of her going back and me checking that box and saying job well done stupid self. Uh, we chose to go back together. Wasn't sure what was going to happen. Um, I knew I still loved her. I was kind of just hoping that she wouldn't leave me when we got back. Um, but we went back together and we, our relationship started to grow. Um, And I proposed to her. Uh, The day I had proposed to her was on Christmas Day. I think I was 20 years old. And I asked her dad, I said, hey, Dan, do you care if I propose to your daughter? I would really, I love her. I'd really like to ask her to marry me on Christmas Day. He goes, I don't see why that's a problem. I ran upstairs, asked her. I came back down. I said, hey, she said yes. He looks at me and goes, Craig, I did not know you were talking about right now. (laughs) So... (laughs) Uh, that was kind of a funny moment in our family, but you know, living back in in our hometown, uh, her sister, my my fiance's now wife's sister, had gone through her struggles and her battles, and she had moved back to Plattsburgh as well because she used to live far away as well, and she started to go to church, and slowly but surely, conversation about Jesus started to uh, happen in in the household, and how I said, I, I've always believed in God, but I never know who he was, you know, little things like when she would talk about like the old Testament and, you know, villages being uh, wiped down and stuff like that. I'd be like, listen, that's not who God is. You don't even like you, you're you going to church, but you don't even know that. That's not, you don't even know Jesus. You're saying his name. Do you even know him? And like, we would have conversations like that. And that was really my stance a lot, like acting like I knew somebody I didn't truly, I would act like I knew him and I didn't. And I definitely had a lot of, uh um, self-motives of exposing her for some reason, uh, maybe trying, maybe I was being convicted and I wanted to maintain where I was. So I would just say, listen, you just don't even know what you're talking about. Essentially the word, the the message that she would feel in her heart after she was done talking to me was, listen, you don't even, you can keep going to church. You don't even uh, know what you're talking about, but she kept going and her mom started to go with her. Um, and they started to read a lot of books and, you know, my wife and I, we, we never went to church in Plattsburgh. But there was, and this might blow your mind. I don't think I've ever told you this, sir. But I had an experience that I was laying in bed with my wife. And I did, again, I did not know the Lord personally at this time. I definitely had not accepted him as my Lord and Savior. But I was laying in bed. And I remember my eyes were closed, uh, but I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't even tired. And it looked in my eyes like you know, when you close them and you see blackness, it looked like far, far ahead was this tiny little beam of light. And then it just felt like I couldn't move for a minute. And I really tried to move, and then I couldn't move. And then it seemed like this light was coming closer. And it came closer and closer. It's just like this: closer and closer and closer, this little light. And as it came closer and closer, I saw it in the shape of a cross. And it came closer and closer and closer. And then i saw a man on the cross and he came closer and closer and closer to me all the way up until his nose was right here and he said see through my eyes and then the next thing i knew and i saw i was on the cross and i was seeing everybody uh everybody standing before me spitting on me angry yelling and i was on the cross no pain i didn't feel any pain and then i, I was able to sit up and Alexa was like, are you okay? Like, I was just talking to you. And I was like, no, I couldn't move. And then I was like, you're not going to believe what I just saw. And the craziest thing was one half of my face, the right side was extremely hot. And the left side was ice cold. Uh, and I, I had my wife touch, she was my fiance at the time, touch both sides. And one would almost burn your fingers and the other would almost bring a chill. It was very cold. Like, like I like I had my head this side of my face, sitting out a nice cold window and the heat blaring on this. And I was just in bed. And to this day, I don't, I, I mean, I take, I have taken that for, for what it is. I, I still don't know why he chose to say those words to me, see through my eyes in that moment of my life. Uh, but it. I've never forgotten it. Uh, so I would say that that was probably the major seed that the Lord planted in my heart. Because from there, uh, we, my wife and I went on to get married in Florida. We decided to stay in Florida. We've been here for over three years now, a little bit over three years. And uh, three years, a little bit less than three years ago, I had given my life to him. Uh,
0: initiated, go ahead, go ahead. Well, what, what I wanna know is three years, what has transpired in and through you in those three years in Vero Beach since knowing the Lord? Yeah, definitely. I will tell you um, the day I made a conscious decision to
1: accept the Lord as my Savior and submit myself to to his Lordship, I have not had any alcohol. I've lost all desire for it, actually. Uh, I could go to any party around any people. Even when I just went home recently and all my family, they all love to drink. I'll try to get me to drink, but I have no desire. There's nothing I, uh, and I I won't take this for granted. So I'm not going to say I'll never have to like battle a desire, but I I have not had to yet uh, really say, I really want to do that, but no, I'm not going to, Uh, not in a while. But that, that desire to, to drink gone, the anxiety, the fear gone. I feel whole on the inside. I really do. I feel, uh, I just feel very blessed. I have a peace. I have joy. And this is real joy. Like I wake up every single day. So grateful for my wife. We have two kids now. We had two miscarriages before we got married. Um, which I know for, for both of us was very hard. Her especially. Uh, I love her so much. She's such a great woman. And she's just such a loving woman that I just remember her little heart, how excited she was to like, you know, have them. They weren't uh, long-term miscarriages uh, or anything like that, but it still did, did hurt us. Um, so once I accepted the Lord, I prayed to him, please, Lord, give us kids and right after we got married right after, because nine months later we had our first son, his name's Elijah. Uh, and he is such a blessing. He's very, very smart. He sees so much fun. Uh, shortly after him, we had our second son, Judah, uh, who actually didn't breathe for almost I would say a minute and a half when he was delivered, uh, we were calling my wife, myself, and my sister-in-law all calling on the name of the Lord, uh, in the opera, the operating room, in the, uh, delivery room. And we said a prayer. And when our prayer finished, you just heard water cough out of his lungs. And he went from being very blue, uh, very blue, probably something even if you mix that with some purple, he was, he was very blue, uh, to breathing and coughing. It was, it was really good to hear him him coughing. I could tell you that. Mm. Uh, So, you know, that's transformed. We've started our own ministry. I work for uh, you, you, uh, Sarah, I I think I've told you this, but it was really the time that you denied me a position. I, I say it like that for a very good reason, because, you know, when we get denied something, even from, you know, our father, when we pray for something, we get denied it. It doesn't mean that you know, there's not something else in store. And it doesn't mean that he, he's not thinking about us. But when you denied me, there was something in my heart. First of all, I just really like had a fondness for you. You really reminded me of my dad. And I tell you that all the time, like how I used to tell my dad, oh, you're my hero, you're my hero. Well, I have no heroes now, because I have no idols. <laughs> but uh, I really do look up to you. And uh, our conversation that day, you know, you had told me, you, said, you know, you're not right for the job. Cause again, I still had a little bit of that mindset that I knew somebody I didn't. And it was shortly after that I accepted the Lord. Then all these other things started to happen. Uh, so we have our own ministry. It's called seven roots. I work for uh, legacy minded men as well. And uh, yeah,
0: the Lord has just been good to us. He really has. And you have been an incredible blessing to this ministry. You, I've said it a million times and, uh, Uh, I have so much respect for you, Craig, from where you've been. And I'm so glad you got the chance to tell your story. And, you know, this is a true story of redemption. It's a true story of redemption everywhere that you've been, all the challenges you faced, but you put your trust in Christ and he, he changes everything. He is a paradigm shifter. And, uh, and, and I am witness the part of the story about you and I meeting and, and about, me denying you, what what our listeners need to understand is the reason why I denied you is because I was at the time working with the Christian radio station. Mm-hmm. And in order to work at that station, you needed to know the Lord. And we put you to the test. We asked you questions and you could not answer those questions.
1: That's right.
0: And then I guess it was about six months to a year later when I saw you at um, by the beach in Vero. And you came up to me and you said to me, I'm ready now. And I said, give me a call in two weeks. I was very specific about those two weeks. I wanted to see if you were going to actually follow up. And you did. And you, I could not believe the change in you. It was unbelievable. Guys, listening to this, uh, I want you to understand this young man knows the word of God inside and out. And he has made it just a a point to, to put his nose in the scriptures and understand who this Savior Jesus really is in his life. And wow, it is, it was a phenomenal transformation. So, you know, we are here today and, and the Lord has brought us together and we're doing some wonderful things in the name of the Lord. Amen. But it all, and this is what I want people to understand is I don't care where you are. I don't care where you've been. Now that might sound harsh and I don't mean it to be harsh, but I want you to wake up one day and realize that that was in the past, but God has a great future for you, but you need to simply turn your eyes to him, put your trust in him. You know what? It was a great illustration that Craig gave us about being on the cross, no pain he mentioned by the way, but to be able to see through his eyes. And I think when you see that, you'll understand that whatever pain we suffered is really for us to learn from. And if we could take that, learn from it, and then understand that there's so many people that have gone through the same stuff we have, but they don't know the Lord, that you could be a powerful influence on them. The reality is this, within you is greatness. And if you understand that greatness that's within you, which we call the Holy Spirit, that is given to every single person who calls on the name of Jesus, and we allow that that spirit to release and work through us, we are not only going to be changed ourselves, change our families, but we are going to change the people around us. Because at the end of the day, life is but a mist. Your life is but a mist. But if you choose to live your life for somebody else, that's where real success is. That's where real significance is. And I'm going to challenge you today to hear this young man's story and to recognize that you have a story as well, because God gives us all a story, and to now put it into action for his glory, not your glory, not anybody else's glory, because he built you to be great. He built you to be successful. And I promise you this, if you turn to him and you trust him, while the life might not be easy, it'll be incredibly joyful. And wouldn't you rather have joy than just success, empty success that this world preaches to us on a daily basis, money, power, sex, all that stuff. When you have a joy that radiates within, it's something that cannot be taken away from you. And I challenge you. So Craig, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for Again, having me. You are an incredible blessing to me. I'm, I praise God for you all the time.
1: Hey, if I can say one thing, sir, yeah. to, uh, to those people who are really good at uh, hiding their emotion, mm. you know, one last thing I will say is What's on the inside, what you just said, sir, about Holy Spirit literally changing you? I just want you to, if you're listening, to really think about the fear, the anxiety, and the paranoia. Supplicate. We're completely vanquished. Joy, peace, gratefulness. Now is all I feel. Mm-hmm. Not an ounce of fear, not an ounce of anxiety or paranoia. When something happens in my life, I call on the name of the Lord. And he literally delivers my family. And I praise God for that.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That's all I have, sir. Thank
0: you. Well, we thank you for listening. And this has been Legacy Lifters. I'm Joe Pellegrino with Craig Livesey. And remember, resources abundantly at LegacyMindedMen.org. I pray that this has been a blessing to you. May God bless you.